You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. I remember translating the opening verses of 1 Timothy 2 for a Greek class in seminary. I had read the passage in English before, and I had read some who insisted that whatever the book means when it says that God desires that all be saved, it couldn't possibly mean what it actually says on the page. But here it was in the bedrock, the supreme authority in my Protestant world, the Greek text. Perhaps God does not merely desire, but even intends or even resolves to save all. There it was. Of course, I was not the scholar of antiquity that David Bentley Hart is. So these 18 years later, I'm pleased to read this new book that all shall be saved from Yale University Press, in which he resolves to present not only exegetical, but also philosophical and psychological reasons why we Christians would do well to take God's salvation truly as universal. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to have him back on the show. David, thank you for coming on board. Thanks for having me. Now, you either coin or appropriate a term for the theologies that this book opposes, and that term is infernalism. So what range of theological positions does that term encompass as this book deploys it? Yeah, I, I didn't coin it. I'm not the first. Uh, I think I, I uh, tended to call the, uh, the proponents of eternal damnation the Hellfire Club. Uh, <laughs> which as a 17th century antecedent, if you know it, or hellions or something. But anyway, infernalist seems to be a popular term of abuse among people who think the way I do, so I adopted it. It's just basically those who uh, insist that it is uh, uh, an indispensable uh, and cardinal point of dogma for Christians that some will, probably most will, or at any rate, can uh, can be uh, eternally damned to a condition of conscious eternal torment. And the direction you take this book, I mean, is not what I would have expected, which is why I enjoyed the book so much. You took it in the direction of worship. So the central question becomes, is an infernalist God worth worshiping? Uh, so... Is that, is that how I read it? I, I, uh, That's how I read it. Yeah, I mean, did did I misread it? No, no. I mean, I, uh, I. That's one way of putting it. It's, um, I mean, it's put in a somewhat more austerely logical form in the book. Could such a god actually uh, be the transcendent good as such? Is it? Could such a god even exist? Therefore, ah, okay, really okay, but. But, uh, yeah, um, but would, would the God that's described by most Christian dogma be worthy of worship, reverence, or even, uh, you know, tepid fondness? Uh, <laughs> well, as I said, what I find interesting is that, you know, one of the wagers that this book seems to make uh, is that most people do not, in fact, worship that God, even if they claim to. Yeah. Uh, so I want to hear, I, I want our listeners to hear you say, what gives you that hunch that most people are not themselves infernalists if you dig deep enough? Uh, well, for one thing, I mean, it's just personal experience. It, the, um, you find quite often the people who claim they believe this when pressed on it uh, in case you know, cases of 
persons they've known, say, have committed suicide or other seemingly hopeless cases, uh, uh, actually turn out to have a very different concept of God than the one they think they have. But also, uh, it's just a matter of behavior. If you really believed in the God that a great deal of Christian tradition claims is the God of Christ, and you truly held him up as your model of the good, the true, the beautiful, uh, it would be very hard to live the kind of life that, that, that most Christians do, which is one of genuine trust in such a God and of personal charity. It's just been my experience that when people are, are really asked to think through all the implications of their faith, they begin qualifying it almost instinctively as they go along. And this, to me, suggests that what they think they believe uh, is, is actually a set of arid propositions that they've been told to repeat. And what they truly believe is something for which they don't actually have as yet uh, a clear name, but it's certainly not what they think it is. Right, and one of the points, and I, I can't remember if I read it in the book or inferred it from the book, is that uh, the fact that Christians keep having children uh, betrays the fact that uh, they're yeah. not quite as confident as they sometimes seem. Well, I mean, let's, let's be honest. Um, the, uh, the picture, say you're, you know, your picture of reality is, is formed by book three of the uh, Institutes of Calvin. Uh, the chances of any uh, soul coming into this world and, and ending up in any final state other than infinite misery throughout eternity are actually quite small. You right. Know? Uh, and, the, you know, I, I can't imagine actually uh, being able, having the... Uh, the personal fortitude or callousness it would take to bring children into a universe as dismal and miserable and cruel as the one that theology describes. Mm -hmm. uh, Pascal had a wonderful image. He was a Jansenist, which is just a you know a Catholic Calvinist in the yeah, 17th yeah. century. <laughs> you know, well, there are other kinds of Catholic Calvinists as well, such as the Thomists of the time, uh, believe it or not, but that's a different issue. Uh, but he, uh, you know, he said, what is life in this world? It's like a, a number of prisoners sentenced to death, chained together, and each day a few of them are taken away to their doom. And that was his image of life in this world. And uh, the curious thing is it never occurred to him if that's the world his theology obliged him to believe in, uh, for whatever reason, that he might who knows, have a somewhat defective uh, picture of the God uh, who, who, who made it. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to, I want our readers to hear a few segments of the book uh, so they can get a taste, so they can go out and read it. Uh, and one of those is the story of Domitian and the steward. Uh, huh. Be as brief or expansive as you wish, but tell our listeners that story. Well, you can find that in Suetonius, um, the emperor of Domitian. Uh, apparently had a wicked sense of humor. Uh, he, uh, he invited one of his stewards to dine with him from his own dishes in his, in his private apartments, uh, an honor that even the, the most uh, elevated the patrician class would have been uh, 
you know, astonished to receive in many circumstances. I mean, and treated him like, uh, treated his steward as his personal guest, an honor far beyond anything the man could ever hope for in this life. The next morning, he then ordered him crucified, the steward, that is. Uh, and in doing this, of course, demonstrated his sovereignty, so to speak. His, uh, uh, he had the power to do as he did, to dispose of his servant as he did. And this is how he chose to exercise it as a display of that power. Uh, I think the God of, say, Book Three of the Institutes is basically an, an omnipotent version of Domitian. And that uh, Christian consciences, not just Calvinist consciences, but Christian consciousness, consciences have been so seared and warped by defective theology uh, over the years that they fail to notice just how hideously evil that God is. Right, right. And I'm going to give our listeners one more sentence for free. Uh, and listeners, buy the book nonetheless, because we're only giving you a, a sample here. Uh, but this sentence, in, in my mind, uh, sets the, I don't know, I mean, uh, sets the rhetorical appeal of the Calvinist-Jansenist message uh, in very stark terms. And here's the sentence, quote, grace universally given is still grace, end quote. So as you see things, why is it that so many people find the alternative picture of grace, a picture in which God must destroy most in order for anyone else's salvation to be gracious, why do they find that so compelling? I uh, don't you know. Limited imagination, personal cruelty. I, I don't know. The, the thing is, I, mean, I, 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 I am rather in, impatient with it, so it's hard for me to be, to be able to characterize it in a sympathetic way. Okay. I think, uh, but it is curious, isn't it? I mean, it, actually, a grace universally given, you would think, would be more... Uh, precious for just that reason. I mean, consider, I mean, take, put it in, in the silliest human terms, uh, the very rich lord of the manor <laughs> in, say, an 18th century English village invites all of the children to a large party, right? but only some of the children he brings inside uh, to enjoy all of the uh, treats and get presents. The others, say the children of the poor, he, he makes stay out in the garden and they just get uh, some lemonade. You know. Well, already you'd say to yourself, well, his generosity is of a very peculiar kind, isn't it? Because it's, 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 it's intermingled with a kind of uh, parsimony, uh, even a sort of cruelty that makes the gift that he gives to the privileged children seem less precious, more contaminated with uh, spite, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but for some reason, I mean, I can, I can think of, there's a fellow who uh, just published a huge two-volume history of, of Christian universalism attacking it named Michael McClyman, who teaches at St. Louis University. Uh, it's an awful book. I mean, the scholarship is dreadful. <laughs> I, just, I mean, I say this even though I know the man. He's a good guy, but, but he's driven by his obsession. He has a sort of obsessive hatred of universalism. And the book is just dreadful. Its scholarship is, uh, is, is awful. And the 
reasoning is awful, but it goes on for like 2,000 pages because, you know, he's so desperate to convince people that, that, that grace has to be rare to be truly gracious. And uh, it's a curious thing, and I, I don't understand quite how one can imagine that to be the case. Uh, a gift that is given is still a gift, even if uh, another gift is uh, of equal value is given to someone else. Uh, maybe, you know, I can see jealousy if this were a matter of, like, you know, uh, romantic predilection, you know, if, uh, you know, if, 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 you can see why a woman might get angry if you uh, ask her to marry you and give, and give her an engagement ring and then do the same thing to her sister five minutes later. That would be a bit peculiar. But that's not a gift. That's a specific uh, pledge. So we're not talking there about grace. We're talking about a, a, a mutual contract of relationship. The worst... Psycholo I mean, the, the psychological motive that I've encountered, though, in this regard, the one that's most disheartening, I encountered when I was in St. Louis for the year, uh, talking to some former evangelicals who had become Catholic, and as often happens in both the Orthodox and the Catholic world, former fundamentalists, when they convert either to Orthodoxy or Catholicism, tend to create... Uh, a fundamentalist version of orthodoxy or Catholicism in the process. Listeners, you know, I hope you heard that. <laughs> who, who did you say? I said, listeners, I hope you heard that last sentence. Well, it's true. I mean, oh, it's they, absolutely true. Yeah, they, 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 in America right now, there's been a huge influx of, of former evangelicals into the Orthodox Church, but the problem is, is that they, the orthodoxy that they've embraced is one they've also largely invented. It's you know, simply in, uh, uh, in its intellectual dimensions and in its spiritual dimensions, and definitely uh, in its in its moral sensibility, it's still fundamental evangelical fundamentalism. And these fellows I talked to at SOU on hearing that I was sympathetic to Origin in this case, finally one of them blurted out, "Well, what's the point of becoming a Catholic then?" Uh, not, not what's the point of being a Christian. I mean, it's becoming a Catholic. So uh, uh, he apparently had a very specific notion of who would be elected. Now, what's interesting about that is, is, is what I, the, the, what I came away with from that conversation was that what, what both of them felt, both of these fellows felt, was they had worked their way up, so to speak, to Catholicism out of fundamentalism. They were like. Uh, you know, the fellow who comes from a really poor working class background and has, has worked very hard, gotten into the upper middle class and has bought a nice house in a gated community mm -hmm. and sending his kids to a private school that's much too expensive for most people. And then to his indignation learns that uh, the school has a scholarship program for poor children whose parents didn't work their way up, way up and that this somehow he feels detracts from his accomplishments. Okay, but as you know, there's there is a parable that deals with this. Yeah, I was gonna say it's almost <laughs> as if someone started working in the eleventh hour. I <laughs> yes, and, and, and were indignant. It was indignant, and, and those who had been working from the first hour to the third hour, I'm sorry, uh, grew indignant uh, right. to discover that that their wages were the same as those who had labored but an hour. You know. Well, and I, and I think the reason that the psychology of this makes me so curious is that the 
students I teach, I'm an English professor at an evangelical college, they seem more resigned to it than they seem insistent upon it. Uh, and so when I... <laughs> When I get to know them well I mean, enough, I mean, I, 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 unfortunately, I've met some who positively delight in it, but that's really different. okay. Wow, mostly among Thomists. Okay, Curious all right. Enough, I, I would say you know Calvinists because I don't like Calvin, and I've been very open. <laughs> but the people I find who uh, who take the most cold-blooded approach to this are, in fact, not. not I don't mean by Thomists. I don't mean people who just study Thomas Aquinas. Don't get me wrong. Thomism technically is a 16th century school of neo-scholastic thought in Canada that became dominant up through the early 20th century. Sure. And that had its downfall, really, in Vatican II, as well as in the greater intellectual world of Catholicism, for any number of reasons. It was illogical. It was, just, it was unrelated to the Christian doctrine of the past. It was evil. You know, the, the basic things. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, yeah, those are the ones I've encountered who take a kind of weird, perverse pleasure in insisting on the rarity of salvation and even defending Thomas's claim that in heaven the blessed will have a, a direct knowledge, will have a knowledge of the sufferings of the damned and that knowledge will increase their beatitude. Right, which is a passage I encountered first. Not in Thomas, but in Genealogy of Morals by Nietzsche. Yes, Nietzsche, you know, I have you, you nihilist, is what he wrote in his Nachlass on that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and he's quite right. Nietzsche is a far better Christian than uh, Thomas is at that point. All right. Well, I want to turn to the, the four theological meditations that occupy most of this book's pages. Uh, the first one concerns creation out of nothing and its implications for eschatology. And the big conversation here concerns itself with divine goodness. So yeah. in terms of the nature of God, what differences emerge when a theology loses either the disjunction between creation and creator or when it loses its sense of the true analogy between the same? It seems that these are uh, a Scylla yeah. and a Charybdis. Right, and that's, that's, and that's a good way of posing the uh, opposition, because I, I can't uh, rehearse the arguments of that chapter uh, off the top of my head, just because it's a uh, it's a very uh, closely sort of crafted argument in what would be called game theory, believe it or not. not certainly, I, certainly. Not that I describe it that way, but um, yeah. On the one hand. If the uh, distinction is lost, you can come up with one of those pseudo-sub-Hegelian theologies that, uh, that, that became fashionable in the late 19th century and much of the 20th, in which in some sense, uh, or even process theologies of a sort that are uh, you know, sequelae of, of Whitehead's metaphysics, in which uh, you know, God is... Uh, so to speak, coming to himself, forging himself, becoming who he is in the fires of history and through the negations of suffering and sin and death and evil. The logical problems with that are insurmountable, and I won't rehearse them here. But if there were some, if that were so, then we would take the realities of the world we inhabit, even the most horrific of them, as somehow necessitated and we could then exculpate God 
uh, of the worst consequences of creation. Right. It, it, and and it, that is the singular concern of process thinkers, is oh, we yeah. have to remove God's moral culpability, and right. we have to remove that culpability at any cost intellectually. Right. But, I mean, I think anyone with a uh, coherent ontology uh, knows that that all this does is, in fact, defer the question of being uh, to another level, because the God of that theology is, in some sense, a creature of his creatures and still would have to be a contingent reality mm -hmm. that has a source higher than himself who would be the real God. So, I mean, it's an infinite regress into uh, the logic of the absolute and the contingent that, that no one, not even... And Whitehead was a brilliant philosopher, but, but when you overly simplify his ideas... Uh, and turn them into process theology, uh, and and again, and in the in the Protestant world, a lot of it's just sort of like bad Hegelianism or or bad middle showing. But on the other hand, as you say, if you sever the uh, um, the analogical connection between God and world, you go the other way, the nominalist route, and imagine that God is entirely hidden, and it's just His inscrutable will that lies behind the whole drama of creation, and that we don't dare imagine that we know what goodness is. Well, there are a number of problems there. Once again, you've demoted God to the condition of a being among beings, one who, who uh, can express himself or hide himself because his works are extrinsic to his own nature. They lie outside of the way, you know, making a sandwich lies outside of you, although even then making the sandwich you think would say something about you, like whether you prefer cheddar cheese or Swiss, you know. Um, but also it renders all theological language meaningless. I mean, there's, there's no way that the, the nominal, if the claim is that we have no no concept of divine goodness at all, no concept of, of, it, uh, of um, the coherence of the language we use, not, not in a univocal sense, obviously infinite divine goodness is not something I can comprehend, but it, it, but it is still analogically related to what I'm talking about when I speak of human goodness. Well, you'll find that that kind of aquavocity then also infects all theology. You'd have no reason for believing anything. You'd have no reason for accepting uh, what you think are revealed truths because you'd have no way of distinguishing truth from falsehood, rational from irrational. Um, there, there has to be a grammar of, of analogy between uh, God and creation, first of all, for metaphysical reasons, just for reasons of plain logic, but also if there is such a thing as a coherent theological claim. Mm -hmm. uh, ultimately, anyway, I'm making it all too complicated in a sense. Either option is both, uh, is, is, uh, both philosophically and morally useless. We, we, we can't go that way. Instead, we have to assume that either, however you understand it, ultimately uh, all causes are reducible to their first cause in God. Mm -hmm. And the moment you say God creates out of nothingness rather than out of necessity, the moment that also you grant uh, that all that is entailed then in creation, because of course God is omniscient and omnipotent. All that is entailed is therefore morally uh, entailed and therefore positively willed 
by the Creator, then the nature of God becomes manifest in what he does. And the, the eschatological question is where the final judgment turns out to be a revelation as much about who God is as about anything else. And if who God is involves the final irreducible and non-negotiable surd of, of evil, suffering, exclusion, uh, then that is part of who God is. Evil, suffering, and exclusion are actually aspects of his identity. Mm -hmm. Basically worshipping the devil in worshipping God. Well, I want to turn to your second meditation, and its focus is biblical interpretation. And the real gold in this chapter, for my money, is this eight-page pageant of universalist passages from the New Testament. I'm not going to make our listeners... I, I am going to make the listeners buy your book to see that parade. Uh, the cost of the book is worth that parade. But I would like to uh, hear you talk about another part of that, cha of that meditation, pardon me. Namely the fact that you're not interested in any so-called tension between those scriptures that proclaim universal deliverance and those that threaten the wicked with punishment in the age to come. What hmm. is the patristic and the theological alternative to just letting that contradiction lie there in well, the New Testament? Yeah, it's not a contradiction. Uh, that's, the, that's the thing. It's, it, it seems like a contradiction to us because we've presumed an eternal hell is what the punishment passages are about, except that there's only one verse that might be taken that way if you read it in English translation only and therefore unaware that there are other quite compelling ways of, of reading it that, that you see in the Greek and the Syrian fathers. And Syriac fathers, as a rule, tended to be fluent in Greek. They're part of the Hellenistic world. Right. Uh, so my claim is there isn't really a tension there. The, the tension is entirely illusory based on our tendency to take every image of punishment and convert it by some uh, quick metabolism of the Christian imagination into an image of eternal suffering. And if you look at the imagery Christ uses, for instance, it's, it's, not, it's not consistent. It's not meant to be. Uh, what's often translated as hell, the Gehenna, well, the language of the Gehenna as Christ uses it is pretty much straightforwardly one of destruction. It's a sort of burning rubbish heap where, where there are worms that, you know, it's from Isaiah, there are worms that uh, are constantly feeding on carcasses and fires that are constantly burning corpses, uh, and, and that utter, which in both Isaiah and of the New Testament just means that they utterly destroy what's thrown into the Gehenna. That's why Christ says, you know, speaks of God as the one who has the power to destroy body of mm -hmm. soul, soul in the Gehenna. Then there, so and then of course there are other images of destruction like uh, ovens, you know, furnaces in which weeds are burned. Then there are other images of exclusion, being left out of the party, not getting into the wedding feast, being outside right. in the dark and hearing everyone. And there are weeping images. and gnashing of teeth. Yeah, but again, I mean, it's not a claim. You know, so far this notion of eternal torment is still something we're superimposing on on what are at that point just poetic images. And then there are images of being sent to debtor's prison or or being imprisoned uh, and tortured. But that, what's interesting about those, which would, you would think would be the ones that come closest to the imagery of hell, is those are always. Uh, 
was shown to be a finite duration in the parable. You know, you, you, you went into a debtor's prison and you got, out when, you got out when your debt was paid. And the debt would be paid. I mean, the, the debtor's prison didn't make you insolvent totally. It meant that, that you were stripped of what you owned, but also from the prison, you and your family would still be able and had to engage in certain forms of commerce and loans until the debt was discharged. Uh, and or, you know, uh, torture was, was often prescribed in place of the death penalty uh, for, for malefactors of a certain kind, but, but then they were released. So here we have imagery, the, the most hellish Im imagery in Christ's teaching, but also at the same time uh, we're told that this is not a permanent or final reality. In those cases, and what we really should take from this is the realization that Jesus is not describing some literal final state of affairs. He's giving us a, whole, a host of images of punishment uh, and of the consequences of the evil that we, we do in this life. Now, among the church fathers, the greatest in dealing with all these passages together were origin and Gregory of Nyssa, but there were others who were universalists, but they were the most systematic. And it's only Gregory whose work we still have intact. We only know more or less that it conforms well to much of origin because we, we can deduce that from uh, similarities between the locutions used by his sister, Gregory's sister, Macrina, in, in the treatise on the soul and resurrection and things we find in origin, but whatever the case where uh, Gregory takes 1 Corinthians 15 as a blueprint of the whole plan of creation and salvation and sees, uh, you know, three, three moments, you know, the, the, the end of history and, and a judgment that does involve the refining the fire of divine love, divine wrath, they're one and the same thing. And he sees this clearly as being laid out in 1 Corinthians 3, that, uh, that uh, you know, some of us, our works will be tried by fire, uh, and the works will pass the test, or if they don't, the works will be destroyed, and so we'll have to be saved by the fire. That's how he reads it. And as you look at Gregory's reading of these passages, as he weaves them together, he leaves nothing out. He... Uh, no, I mean, the, the, well, you could say he leaves the book of Revelation out because it wasn't part of the canon in his part of the Christian world at that time. But even then, uh, that wouldn't really change the picture. He creates a grand picture that seems to conform well to the language Paul uses in 1 Corinthians. Then, uh, you know, you compare that to someone like Augustine, obviously one of the truly towering geniuses of Christian thought. Nonetheless, Augustine has the very, uh, well, has a very severe notion of the, of the limitations of salvation. When he has to deal with the sort of verses that I quoted, what, what you called a grand parade there, he's obliged to explain them away. Gregory doesn't explain anything away. Uh, he, he covers both the verses that deal with punishment and the, the promise universal Salvation, it, it, to him, it's an entirely consistent message. Whereas Augustine has to do things that, frankly, are quite absurd at times. Um, 
Well, and, and some of these uh, you and I... Di- no, that's all right. Some of these you and I discussed uh, when we talked about your translation of the New Testament. And one of the notable features of, of both your translation and of your textual notes is that uh, you seem to follow Gregory in taking the subjects and verbs on their own terms and saying, this is what they say. Let's read them as they speak. Yeah, curious, really, that that, that, uh, that uh, one might actually imagine that, that those verses I cite over the course of those pages actually mean what they say. <laughs> well, I find it also curious, it's odd that so many people are sure that there's some clear picture of the, of the hell of eternal torment in the New Testament. But what they're basing this on are verses that are so obviously ambiguous, obviously metaphorical, and so obviously lacking in the information they think is there, while explaining away a host of verses which seem to be pretty straightforward propositions, declamatory sentences. Uh, I think the one that always got me in reading, uh, I think it's De Correcione, I can't remember which, the first time I read it, Augustine's, but it's an argument that's repeated throughout Western Christian history and occurs in Calvin, for instance, is that Romans 5.18 is pretty straightforward. It says, just as everyone... uh, you know, everyone died in Adam, so everyone will be made alive in Christ. It's written in that kind of jagged, broken Greek of Paul, so forgive the, the uh, off-the-cuff paraphrase there. But that's one sentence, and Augustine and Calvin and a lot of people in between oblige us to believe that the first half of that sentence, all, means everyone throughout time. And in the second half of that sentence, all has come to mean the small company of the elect. Right. And that transition occurred instantaneously, and Paul didn't think to mention it. Right, right. You know, uh, whereas Gregory reads that verse and says, okay, well, this is a pretty straightforward statement. Uh, <laughs> uh, it doesn't occur to him to explain it away. Uh, it, it occurs to him that it's... Uh, it, it's a verse that sheds light on Paul's understanding of the work of Christ. I want to take a side trip for a moment because you've got me thinking about some uh, Christian art from Palestinian and Syrian churches uh, that tend to have Jesus leading a host of people uh, out of death, usually trampling on Hades. I mean, it, it, does that art arise from that Eastern tradition of reading, do you think? Oh, yeah. No, that's... Uh... That's the, the whole Eastern iconographic tradition of Easter is the image of the shattered gates of hell under the feet of Christ and Christ raising uh, the prisoners out of hell. Now, uh, as I say, as I think I said to you last time we talked, uh, Orthodox tradition uh is no different from the Western in, in, in warning against eternal hell, but it, the universalist tendency in the East has always been stronger. And there are more, you know, figures like Gregory of Nyssa and Isaac of Nineveh and the, uh, the great Antiochians like Diodor of Tarsus or Theodore of Mopsuestia and other figures like Arjun, you know, they're much more numerous in Eastern tradition. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, this continues right up to the present. I mean, uh, there are 
what look like pretty strong universalist leanings in the greatest uh, spiritual teacher of late modernity for many is Abbasilio on the Athenite and uh, and his his uh, his but also I mean all the you know all the really the most impressive Orthodox minds of the 20th century Bulgakov above all but also Evdokimov and uh, Olivier Clément and a great number of others, uh, Florensky, just uh, pretty much universalist. I just assumed that was the correct reading. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's it's a, it's a debate in the Eastern Church, but it's a debate with a much different uh, weight uh, on one side than is the case in the, in the West. And part of it is that liturgical and theological tradition. There are many things that are absent in the East that, that, that became part of Western uh, theology, like the notion of an inherited guilt as the way to return, of, of uh, original sin. It's not an Eastern idea. And the soteriology of the East was always one of rescue and conquest. And there was right. no notion of, you know, so you don't find a lot of talk of Christ. Uh, making an offering of, uh, of, to the Father, of the uh, Father pouring out His wrath, upon, uh, pouring out on Christ His wrath against sin. I mean, these are all much later deformations and misreadings of phrases from Scripture put together haphazardly. At least the emphasis was always, uh, you know, we're already prisoners of death, of hell, Hades at least. Uh, and salvation is always put in terms of this this mission of rescue, you know, invasion. God enters into our broken world and overthrows the God of this world. He enters into Hades and smashes the gates of hell. He uh, you know, rescues the, the prisoner. He sets the slave free. And that being the language of salvation and not being darkened, uh, with talk of original guilt or predestined uh, salvation or damnation, it more naturally leads towards uh, universalist uh, speculation. Mm-hmm. I want to turn to the third meditation, and I'm going to give our listeners one more sentence, and then they need to buy the book already. Uh, and that sentence is this, quote, either all persons must be saved or none can be, end quote. This is a truth about uh, human nature, human existence that is as old as Plato and Aristotle. Uh, And yet, I mean, the human nature that the infernalists seem to assume is a much more individualist human nature. So talk a little bit about how this this dispute over human nature is also part of your case. You know, that also is found, by the way, from Gregory. Uh, Gregory assumes that the, that humanity could never actually be the fullness of the divine image, the fullness of human existence apart from uh, the, 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 the total presence of all human beings in this one community of, of the saved. Uh, well, I mean, it's obvious, isn't it, really, that... Uh, I think in the book, and I know in the book, and I'll be coy about this, <laughs> I mention uh, arguments made by, well, I don't mention name him in the book, but let's be uh, let's be frank here, William Lane Craig. Okay. That, uh, you know, well, 
obviously we, he doesn't want to adopt Thomas Aquinas's or Peter Lombard's notion that, that the suffering of the damned increases the beatitude of the saved. I mean, he's a, he, he, uh, he doesn't have a 13th, 13th century Italian nobleman's uh, phlegm, so to speak. Well, and, and he's also writing after Nietzsche. Yes, and well, I mean, give him credit for having the, But his solution is just that uh, God will erase the memory of the damned from the, uh, from the minds of those who knew them in this life. Well, putting aside the uh, mundane psychologization there, there's a problem. I'm not quite sure what he thinks a human being is or what a personal identity is apart from a history of attachments and affinities and loves and failures of love. Uh, you know, who we are as persons is constituted by precisely that, that uh, endless, to be honest, intertwined uh, series of relationships we have with others and that those others have with us and those and, and others beyond us. Um, the notion that, that, that a person could be the person he or she is with, say, let's say a mother, because we're all sentimental about motherhood, right? A mother who has to have her memory of, of her child elided in order to enter into the bliss of the kingdom is a terrifically abridged version of the person she was in this life. But you take it further than that. Uh, one of the uh, one of my Catholic critics, uh, you know, who attacked the first lecture I ever gave on this was Edward Fazer, and he didn't really follow the argument I had made in the in the lecture and article he attacked. Uh, he, he he didn't quite get the point I was making. But on this issue, he out of nowhere said, "Well, you know, manifestly, uh, we can, you know, we can enjoy happiness without being tortured by the thought of those who aren't enjoying happiness, because we never spare a thought, say, for criminals that we don't know in the in the criminal, you know, in prison." Oh, this was his argument. Yeah. Wow. Well, he also wrote a huge defense of capital punishment that's, that functions at about the same level of moral sensitivity. So, okay, uh, that... it's, not, it's not that surprising. It's, this this is not. Let's just say he's a bit tone deaf to some of this this sort of thing. But the funny thing about that is, of course, first of all, it's not really a commendable fact about us that we don't care about uh, people suffering, even if it's suffering that they brought upon themselves in prison, but surely we know that someone out there cares about that person, right? Yes. Okay, and, good. I'm glad you said that because I thought for a moment I had completely lost my intellectual bearings and that that was... Uh, apparently he does find it compelling. I I, I find that monstrous. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well I, I don't want to say anything about him personally. Well, no, no, no. The argument, the argument. The argument. I, I apologize. <laughs> Uh, even good people can be driven to some pretty hideous reasoning if they have accepted the premise that they have to defend the idea of an eternal hell of torment okay. uh, as a matter of faith. In fact, this is one of the points I make in the book, is that the arguments are so bad because people who believe it don't really, aren't really able to believe it as much as they think. And they have to force themselves into 
forms of reasoning that they would be ashamed of in, in other circumstances if they mm-hmm. were. But anyway, let me finish the point. Oh, yeah, someone sorry. Else, someone else cares. Uh, well, let's call him Henry. Henry is in prison. His mother cares about him, his wife, perhaps his son. So our indifference to him is also an indifference to them, right? Sure. Ultimately, it turns out that that to enter into the bliss of heaven by this reasoning, we have to be prepared to be indifferent to as many people as it takes <laughs> to assure that that doesn't disturb our beatitude or our happiness in, the, in God's embrace uh, and, and still somehow miraculously remain the people we are. So either through forgetfulness or through callousness, we have to be detached, at least potentially, from all persons, ultimately. The ethos of heaven would be every man for himself, every woman for herself, every soul for itself, which, of course, as I say in the book, is precisely the ethos of hell. Something of an irony there, I think. Um, ultimately, the notion that, that, that we can exist as persons in that way as isolated moments of just pure idiot bliss, stripped either of our memory or of our moral sensibility, or whatever it is that connects us to others, is a fabulous, in the sense of utterly fictional notion of what it means to be a person, but also a rather hideous one, too. What I say in the book, if this is true, then if this were, then no one could be saved as a person. The only place we could have a personal destiny would be in hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if it is as persons that we, that we are to be saved, which I think is, I think we would agree, pretty much the Christian picture of things, uh, that somehow it's a corporate reality in which what we are is taken up into an ever greater fullness, but not but not by by the destruction of unique personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everything that has happened in this life to shape us into the beings we are, which presumably we believe are works of grace as well, if they succeed in any way in doing this with moral natures. Then, uh, you know, it, it just uh, it, it ultimately the picture collapses. The, the whole idea of the salvation of some and the damnation of others uh, is based upon a, an anthropology that could not be true in any possible world. I'm, I'm reminded of a, a dispute, an ongoing dispute, I'll say, that I have with a friend of mine about uh, Dante's crossing the River Styx in the Inferno uh, yeah. when he sees his enemy, Filippo Argenti. And, you know, shoves him back into the water and, you know, rejoices when the other souls attack him. And my reading of that is that uh, in that moment, his soul has become infernal because he stopped loving his enemy or he's incapable of loving his enemy. And that Virgil simply can't see that because of the limitations of pagan reason. Uh, (laughs) So it's interesting because, of course, my friend says, well, no, Virgil is basically right that, you know, to pity this person would itself be error. Uh, so it's interesting that I see that uh, dispute playing out here. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm sure that Dante put his own words into Virgil's mouth, but uh, I'm not as sure. I'm not as sure. I, I, <laughs> I, uh, I, my feelings about Dante is, of course, we we all grant uh, the genius of the Divine Comedy, but I'm not going to grant the soundness of its theology. All right, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, I, I, th- this, uh, 
there's also, of course, the passage where Cato tells uh, Dante, in the, you know, in the earthly paradise, that he no more can Marcia, whom he had loved, move him. Yes. On the other side of that dismal stream, Marcia, I can't remember, uh, anyway, I'll look it up. Uh, so who's Cato then? Uh, you know, if, uh, you know, what remains of Cato? What part of who he was that was supposed to be saved? It's, it's an interesting mm-hmm. question. If he can no more be moved by Marcia. I mean, think about this really, as if you ran into a friend who had somehow, I don't know, through genetic treatment become a higher being. <laughs> To the point where he could no longer feel any kinship or or friendship or pity for uh, his his former friends, you would you wouldn't really think that your friend uh, had, had advanced to a higher state. You'd think that well, my friend ceased to exist to some degree and was replaced by this other being. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what the, the, the theology of, uh, of, of the infernalist theology asks us to believe, is not that persons are saved, but that persons are annihilated and replaced by creatures uh, whose bliss is unrelated to all the moral, spiritual, and emotional attachments that have shaped the persons that had been there. Hmm. All right, all right. Well, uh, I was a preacher for about three years every Sunday and, you know, in the years before that and after that. Given for that, yeah. <laughs> and in the years before that and after that, I fill pulpit fairly regularly. So over about 20 years, I've probably preached about 200 sermons. And as I think back over the way that I preach, I, I tend to preach the story of rescue rather than the story of the divine courtroom where we wait to see whether the cosmic judge will decree our damnation but as i think about the sermons that i preached you know i tend to you know preach the narrative of rescue but i don't recall ever undertaking a polemic from the pulpit against this sort of calvinist infernalist story so here's my question ethically would you call occasional preachers like me or every week preachers as i used to be uh to carry this book's broadside into the pulpit, or would you suggest some other way of introducing this to the people in the pews? I, I don't have any pastoral gifts, um, and um, so I'm, I'm not the most trustworthy person, but I don't... I, uh, I actually uh, am an extremist when it comes to uh, my view of... of uh, <laughs> the relationship between faith and truthfulness. Um, Full disclosure, I mean, one of the reasons it's hard to tell among the church fathers which of them were full, some of them we know were universalists, there were some were open, but there are others who obviously were as well, but who only hint at it. We we know only because they allow it to slip out now and again. Uh, Gregory of Nazianzus is a perfect example. He, uh, it's clear from one remark in one sermon 
which he aims at the educated elite among his listeners, but not at the common people in the pews, so to speak. Not that there were pews there, but... You know. Right, right. Uh, because it was it was generally believed, even Origen believed this, and this this isn't I mean this isn't something to be uh, looked down on. This was normal of ancient culture, of late antique culture in general. It was believed that there were persons of different capacities, uh, that there were pneumatiki, psychiki, somatiki. There were the more spiritual, the more psychical or soulish, the more carnal or bodily by nature. Those are not just divisions you find in Gnosticism. You find them in the New Testament. You find them in, in Christian writing. And for those who are most spiritually advanced, they can know all the mysteries of the kingdom because they're wise enough to know that the purifying fires of the world to come are not really going to be a holiday in the Bahamas. Or they're wise enough to know that their love of God should be sufficient to make them want to seek the good in all things. By the time you get down to the level of the somatic, though, the, the, the prejudice was that a lot of human beings are just witless brutes who have to be frightened into behaving. And for them, it's good to believe, uh, to have as horrible a picture of the world to come as possible so they'll be scared straight, so to speak. And this was believed to be, by them, everyone believed this, Christians, Jews, pagans, this was just the moral tutelage, this was the basic spiritual paideia, you know, the teaching method, paideia, actually, what they say, <laughs> of, uh, of the time. I, I can't see that. I, I, to me, it's, uh, it's, uh, it, 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 you know, it's basically wrong in every sense. I, I don't think you serve God by being dishonest, even by failing to disclose all that you would say. Uh, in other circumstances, but also because I think the story of eternal damnation and the God of eternal damnation and the way people is actually a twistedly cruel and warped story, which does incalculable harm. I think that a child who grows up believing that uh, is emotionally abused. I believe those who lose their faith because they think that's what the faith says are better Christians than those who keep the faith because they think that's what the faith says. Uh, I prefer an atheist to a Calvinist, to an old, to a fundamentalist Calvinist or Thomist on this. I think the atheist is closer to the true God. So what I would say is, no, uh, the preacher uh, should hammer away. Uh, at the traditional teaching, and if a fuller, rich, do as Gregory does, not speak in the negative, but give the sort of radiant vision of a completely different way of reading Paul, one that, uh, at least I've found from students of mine, can evoke a spontaneous love and joy from those who really are, are taken into the story that Gregory tells. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I don't believe in, uh, in, in Pia Frouss, you know, in the pious fraud, or uh, milk for infants, that if the milk comes mixed with brimstone. Hmm. Well, here at the end, I want to hark back to 2007. That was the year that I first read The Beauty of the Infinite, my first David Bentley Hart book. 
uh, four years after its 2003 that publication. Valley Hard Book too. Ah, very good, very good. So we, 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 ten years after it was written, I think. Okay. Yeah, but I go on. Well, in that book, you explore Gregory of Nyssa's universalist eschatology that we've been discussing, but at the end of that exploration, you wrote this quote: "My purpose, I should say, in discussing Gregory's eschatology is not to enter a brief in behalf of universalism." Orthodox tradition does not authorize me to do so, end quote. In defense of his universalism. Ah, okay. So, let let me ask you then, what is the difference? Has something changed over 16 years, or is is it the difference between exegesis and theology? Yeah. Okay, uh, when you read the book, did you think that I was giving a defense of Gregory's universalism until I got to that point? I did, and, and here's the experience I had, and please, please take this as a compliment, not an insult, but it was the same experience I had at the end of C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, where mm-hmm. he crawfishes at the end and pulls back everything he just said. So yeah. I, it, it was but, a sense but, of betrayal. There's, there's, <laughs> the, there's the difference, So you see. C.S. Lewis actually does pull back. I, I love The Great Divorce. It's one of the few C.S. Lewis books that I uh, admire as much as C.S. Lewis admires, too. But he pulls back at the end. I actually, if you look at what I said there, okay, uh, when I wrote it, and I was, I thought it would be obvious to the ears of anyone listening. The the irony, I mean, the acid irony in that parenthesis, I thought was audible, because at that point I had entered a complete and total brief. I thought you <laughs> had. <laughs> and then I said that in what I took to be an obviously. Uh, sarcastic, so, you know, Orthodox tradition doesn't authorize me to do it. Okay, and I, and, I, and I thought you were loosely pulling the football away. <laughs> if, if I realized that the irony was audible only to me, <laughs> I, I, I happen to have, if anything, uh, an insanely uh, uh, exaggerated view of my own gifts as a writer, but... Uh, uh, so it, it's quite possible that at times uh, I, there's a slip-up like that where I think I've conveyed uh, the tone with sufficient wryness and coyness that that uh, it will be obvious that I'm not, I'm not what I'm saying isn't serious, but obviously that and one other notable exception I can think of, or two others. Once was when I joked to the people who talk about culture wars should could always try to outbreed the secularists. Uh, I, thought that, I thought that was obviously a joke, uh, making fun of their 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 what I took to be their hysteria, only to find that there were those who thought I I really was suggesting uh, a a campaign of militant fecundity, uh, and the other was the time that I jokingly suggested that we should revive dueling because it was between two consenting adults. And oh, it, was just, it was just a throw-off line. It was just a joke, you know. It didn't right, mean right. Either. I was talking about the behavior of the Westboro Baptist Church and how we could really make them shut up if if we could just challenge them to duels every time they go and torment people burying their children. Uh, but that too, I found out, you know, uh, people online thought was meant in earnest. So those are my three great regrets as a writer. Okay, all right, well. I, the, the other possibility is that I was just a, a so emotionally invested by that point that I could not take the joke. Um, 
So I know, I, I, I'm willing to take the blame. It was, it, was too, it was too dry. It was like a martini without any vermouth, you know. <laughs> Just, uh, but 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 uh, I can assure you, nothing's really changed. I've never. Uh, I mean, I've always thought Gregory got it right. Okay. The origin got it right, and that the alternatives are not logically coherent. All right. All right. Well, David, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. Uh, what would you have our, our listeners thinking about salvation, theology, divine love, or anything else as we head for the door? Um, as you head for the door? <clears throat> yeah, I, I'm afraid that uh, uh, it's hard to uh, distill what I want to say into less than 221 pages, which I think is the page count of the book. So what I would say is buy the book. Uh, <laughs> and I think really buy several copies. I, I, I believe every person out there should buy at least five copies. Uh, my reasoning is that I want to make notes. I want to read them. And I want some clean copies that they can give as gifts. David Bentley Hart, thank you right, for coming right, on right. Christian Human right. Profiles. Yes, before you get again, just in case that was another case <laughs> of the tone of voice not sufficiently conveyed. A, a, a fourth regrettable. Uh, look, um, this is what I'll say, is um, that the argument I make in the book is not like most uh, universalist arguments. It's true, but it draws on a long tradition, and that that tradition goes right back to the beginning, and if one gives it a fair hearing, I think one realizes that it makes sense of, of the early deposit of the faith with a fullness that, that is, if nothing else, suggestive. <laughs> that uh, you know, it, there's, there's a good chance that Gregory, uh, reading the Greek of the New Testament and, uh, and living in... in that's a remove of a couple centuries, but nonetheless, of a few centuries, nonetheless, living in much the same intellectual and spiritual world uh, of the apostolic church might actually have known what he was talking about. And now in earnest, thank you, David, for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. All right. <laughs> Listeners, yeah, thank you. Listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. The book is That All Will Be Saved from Yale University that Press. Shall, shall be saved. That, that all shall, shall be saved. You are right. Thank you. Thank you. These are right. You know, it's third person uh, emphatic. I, yes. I, I stand corrected. Yes. Well, Her I mean, I... I didn't mean to interrupt. But <laughs> that is all right. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord. <laughs>